We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 today. We're finishing out this sermon that we've been studying for the last six weeks. We'll be in verses 43 through 49. It's on page 863 of the Bibles in the pews. If you don't have one with you, I'd love for you to pick one up. If you don't have your own Bible, in fact, take that as our gift to you. If you like using an electronic Bible, I would encourage you to follow along with version. It's a Bible app in your app store. You, there's a live event. You can follow along with the notes. You can take your own notes and take them home with you. Uh, ultimately, we just want to resource you with God's Word and what He is doing uh, in and among us as a people so that you can just continue to grow. And so I would encourage that for you. Now, we started this sermon, as I mentioned, six weeks ago, and we, we have found it to be, and I think this is true for, well, at least for those that have let me know what's going on in their life, it is true for so many people that they're finding this message, this passage, this this sermon from Jesus that he preached 2,000 years ago, they're finding it to be as relevant for life today as it was then. They are finding just challenges and encouragements. But, but, but it's, it's, to say the least for me, it's been a, it has blown up my life. It has just done a work in me, and I pray it continues to, to d- just do that. He had spent the whole night in prayer, so he goes up on the mountaintop. He, he, he withdraws from the crowds, and he spends the night in prayer. He is, he is seeking his father. He is seeking time with his father. He's seeking wisdom and, and just fellowship from his father. And he comes down the next morning after a whole night in prayer, and there has gathered a huge multitude of people, a large multitude of people from all over the area, from all over Israel, even beyond its borders. There's this large multitude of people. Among that large multitude, a little bit closer, you know, a little, a, not, not just multitudes of people coming to figure out who Jesus is, but there's a great number of his disciples, people who had seen him, who had heard him teach and determined that they were going to be his followers and, and learn from him. And, and, and they, were, they were gathering there waiting for him. He comes down the mountain and they have gathered on this flat place. He comes down to them and from among this number of disciples, this great number of disciples, he selects 12 men to be his apostles. These apostles would be leaders in ministry, all except for one. He had a different purpose. God had a different intent for Judah. There was a different plan in place, or Judas, I'm sorry. But uh, the, the reality is every one of them was going to fulfill some mission within the kingdom, some purpose within the kingdom. And 11 of them, after Jesus had died on the cross and paid the debt of our sin and resurrected to life and ascended into heaven, these 11 apostles would lead the church and they would select another apostle and things would move forward. God's mission would carry on. That was their purpose. And so he began in this moment to to teach them. He began to give them a new counter-cultural ethic to live by, a counter-intuitive, in many ways, a counter-intuitive ethic to live by. He began to teach against the, the religious teaching of the day, the religious teaching that they had been given. And he began to undermine that and begin to give them a kingdom perspective. And throughout the sermon, we've spent six weeks studying this because it's so radically important for us today. It's so radically important for it just to to rest on us because it is just as relevant now as it was then. The same same types of struggles, although they may come in different packages, they may may be wrapped up in different plastic or different wrapping, but the the struggles we face today are the same as they were then. And and we need to hear the, the things that Jesus is calling his apostles to. And so in this sermon, he begins to preach. And we get a summary of it. We don't get the whole thing. In fact, I, I think Jesus probably taught a whole lot longer. I think it would take you about maybe three to four minutes to read from the beginning of Luke's uh, sermon 
to the end of it. But I think he probably preached for a lot longer than that. I mean, imagine if you'd come from, from outside of Israel, walked all the way to where Jesus was, and then he talked for about four minutes. That might be pretty amazing, but, but I think he probably gave them more than that. The thing is, he, he wanted them to see the principles. He wanted them to hear the commands, and he wanted them to hear the promises or the assurances that came in living within God's command, obeying his commands. But he also wanted, him, wanted them to hear these warnings that he offered. So woven together in his sermon are principles and commands, woven together with promises, assurances of his blessing if we'll live in obedience to him. But if we won't, there were some pretty, pretty stark warnings calling people to, to recognize their faults and their flaws and their sin and turn in repentance. So he called those people, he calls us as his followers to love God first. That's really what we saw is to set aside the pursuit of, sinful, of a sinful world's value system, a sinful world's desires, to set those aside and pursue him first, to set aside the pursuit of happiness, comfort, wealth, and popularity over him. And just put those aside so that we can pursue him. If we find comfort, if we find happiness, if we find wealth, if we find popularity along the way, that's not bad. But if they are our first priority, he warned them. He warns us that these are false gods. They will leave us wanting. Love God first, and his promise is that you will never be let down. As bad as it might seem to get, as we pursue him with our whole heart, this is as bad as it will ever be. The best is yet to come. But if we put these pursuits in life, these, these worldly desires, if we, these fleshly desires, if we put them first, as good as we can ever make it here, it's as good as it will ever get. The worst is yet to come. That was his call. That was his command and his principle and the promises and the warnings. The second, we saw the second point. We worked out, it worked it through in a number of ways to love others, even your neighbors, or, or your enemies. I'm sorry, it's easy to love your neighbors. It's, it's difficult to love your enemies. Love others, even your enemies. That's, that's drastically different than what they had been called to. But he's not calling them to just some fleeting emotional love. He's calling them to an active love, to love actively. Love does something. If love is not doing something, it is not the love that God has called us to. If you can simply say, I love you, and not move in action towards someone, that's not the love he's talking about. We saw it. He called us to love actively. He called us to love reactively. When we are harmed, when we are hurt, when someone comes against us, the reaction is to be, rather than vengeance, to be beneficial, to be good for them, to be, to be working for their good rather than for bringing them harm. He called us to a proactive love, to not wait till someone deserves it. When would anyone deserve this kind of love? When would we deserve this kind of love? He calls us to love proactively, seeking people's best interest, even when they're not doing anything to deserve it. And love compassionately. To give mercy and forgiveness, to give generously to people instead of offering condemnation and harsh judgment. To love them rather than condemn them. That's what he's called us to. And, and I've just summarized about three weeks worth of teaching. You can go back and listen to the podcast, but that's ultimately what this love others, even our enemies, 
That's what he called us to. I don't know about you, but I think that's probably one of the highest calls, one of the biggest expectations that's ever been put on me. Like, I've known these things, but now I'm sitting here and studying them, and I'm letting them just rest on my heart, and I'm seeing my absolute inadequacy and my absolute ineptitude to be able to do it. And I'm thinking, what in the world? How am I going to get this done? Jesus did not call me or us to passivity, to just sit back and let things happen, but to passion, he called us to the passionate pursuit of good for others and the glory of his name. He called us to actively step in loving God first, loving others, even those who would come against us. To be working diligently, purposefully, intentionally for the good of other people. How in the world am I going to get that done? How are we as a people going to get that done? I'm thankful, I'm extremely thankful that Luke didn't stop his summary of this sermon at those two points. At those two sets of commands. I'm extremely thankful that he continued to build out God's commands and Jesus' principles for his disciples to follow because in the next two places, the, the, the passage we studied from last week, we, we begin to hear Jesus teach us how we actually see the first two points completed. We follow the right leader. Find the right influence. We, 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 we live in a world that is saturated with information and influences. We can't drive down the road without seeing signs telling us who's the best and what, what we need in life. There's billboards all over the place to just trying to convince you that you are lacking something and you should buy something else. It's on our phones, it's in our, it's in our homes watching just television, just streaming information across us. He's calling us to find the right influences, to, to be influenced by, by people who have Jesus' character, who look like Christ, who act like Christ, who have Jesus' calling, that they won't quit because it gets difficult, but they are compelled by the call of God on their life to go ahead of us, to lead us to influence us, to to shape and mold us. Even if it means that they make us mad once in a while or offend us with some difficult things once in a while, they long for our good more than our friendship. So they must have Jesus' call. And Jesus like competence. Can they handle his word? Can they teach us by his wisdom and insight and discernment? Can they show us the truth of God that it would intersect our lives so that it would dwell deeply within our hearts and begin to change us? Or are they going to come with a bunch of self-help junk? And give us 12 steps that if we follow their plan, we've got to get the right influences. We've got to follow the right leader. If we're going to see the first two happen, we've got to follow the right leader. And we can't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. That was the final point last week. Don't be a hypocrite. Walk, walk humbly instead of hypocritically. Like recognize and confess your own sins before beginning to assess everyone else's issues. You got a log hanging out of your eye, Jesus says. And so don't, don't be running around looking for the specks in everybody else's eye to make you feel good. 
It's interesting. I, I didn't bring this out. It's interesting. This is said to you. Like, so it's each individual receives it, and your log is your log, and their speck to you is their log to them. We're each carrying these logs around. You're not the only one. But let's just deal with it. Let's own it. Let's live in the reality of it. We are broken, sinful people. In fact, as we looked at it last week, we are the most sinful people we know. I am the most sinful person I know, and you are the most sinful person you know. But in confessing that and being willing to admit that and coming in front of Christ our Savior and owning that truth, that's where we're actually able to begin to be beneficial to other people. See, we we deal with the log in our eye, and then he says we can help our brother. Now, these two things, following the right leader, living humbly rather than hypocritically, not being a hypocrite, these two things must happen if we are going to love God and love others, even our enemies. There's two more points we're going to add today. We're going to pick up where those two parables left off. We're picking up and adding two more parables that give us two more principles by which to live that will ultimately enable us to see the first two commands fulfilled. And so we're going to pick up in verse 43 and read through verse 49. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Let's just go ahead and stop there and just deal with this parable. There's a basic misunderstanding in, 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 in the nature of mankind today. There's a basic misunderstanding of how we view ourselves. Like in the world today, we, we think that we're basically good. Like we, we, we assume that there's a goodness of mankind that kind of keeps things calm in the world. If you do enough bad things, then you become bad. Like, we have a standard for that, right? Like, Charles Manson has moved over to the bad list, right? That's, that's, a pretty, uh, that's pretty safe to say. Santa has a list of naughty and nice. You're on the bad list or the good list, right? We've got standards for this. If you do enough bad things, then you're a bad, per- then you're a bad person. But what happens with someone like Saddam Hussein? Now, from our perspective, this guy, he he fits pretty nicely in the bad list. But there's a whole lot of people thought he was doing a good thing. See, it breaks down, doesn't it? Because our standard isn't universal. Our standard doesn't fit everybody. I'm not promoting Saddam Hussein. Don't misunderstand. I think he fits on the bad list just fine. What I don't want you to misunderstand is I think you fit on the bad list just fine too. Oh, and so do I. In case you think I'm pointing the finger at you, I'm right there with you. See, Jesus shows us in this parable that this isn't true, that people are just basically good. His point is that you know, what, comes out of the, what comes out of a man is determined by who that man is. There's a radically different perspective than what the world will hold. In the first view, man is basically good. His actions don't reveal his nature. 
Our actions are actually separate from our nature. Like we're, we're basically good people that just accidentally do bad things. We're basically good people that just kind of stumble and make mistakes every now and then. And what this does for us is this enables us to distance ourselves from the consequence of our sins. Sure, we tell, we tell some lies every here and there. You know, we make a few mistakes. I've stolen a pin or two in my time. I was a kid and took that little three-cent piece of gum. It may be five cents. I don't know what the, the cost. You know, that little bubble gum that sits in the grocery. I took that and stuck it in my pocket and snuck it out of the store. Yeah, I did a few bad things in my life. But I could distance myself so long as that action doesn't identify my nature. So long as that action is separated out from me, it's some external thing to me, then I can separate myself from the full consequence of what's do that, what it deserves. We've been doing that ever since we first fell into sin. Adam and Eve began to blame one another and tried to remove the responsibility as far from themselves as they could. We've got to get rid of it. In Jesus' view, a man's actions are directly related to his nature. What's in us ultimately comes out of us. Even one bad action is an indication that we are not good. So if you've sinned once, you belong on the bad list. In fact, even one bad action undermines all those seemingly Good actually, You know those videos where, you, where you're scrolling through Facebook and somebody's like, this restores my, 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 my faith in humanity. You just got to watch this thing. And if we just convince God to have faith in humanity, then we'd all be all right. I think he knows this too well. What comes out of a person clearly demonstrates what that person is is who that person is it reveals his or her identity it reveals her his or her nature rc sproul comment in his commentary explains it like this jesus is saying that sin comes from the very center of our being it comes from the heart it is our nature to sin let me say it in another way which i think is consistent with new testament teaching we are not sinners this is listen this is the central point we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We are always acting within our nature. We cannot act any way but what our nature is. That is, he goes on, that is our fallen human human nature. Committing sin is doing what comes naturally. Not according to our original nature, but according to our fallen nature. Adam and Eve weren't given this nature. But they took it on when they rebelled against God and they passed it on when they began to have kids. We all get it. We all inherited it. It's true of everyone. We are all working with a deficit. If we're honest with ourselves for just a moment. Just like we had to be last week. We are more sinful than we like to admit. In light of Jesus' teaching, we're, we know now that our sin reveals it. It's the depths of our, of our internal sinfulness. These external actions reveal very broken, sinful hearts. How does this help us? 
Like right now, I feel, I feel like I just like beat you up a couple times. I punched you in the stomach. I gave you a right hook, you know, and how am I helping you? Like we all know this, right? This is stuff that, okay, we get it. How does this help us love God and love others, even our enemies? How does this help us find the right leader? How does this help us uh, not be hypocrites? Uh, I think it's really simple. When we realize who we are apart from Christ, we will quit drawing on our own power and our own goodness and our own standards and our own perspectives to, to, to try to be good in front of everybody. We will become radically dependent upon his. So we recognize that the only good in us comes from Christ the only good we have to offer anyone else, the only way that we're going to love God as he has loved us, as the only way we're going to love others as we have been loved by him is to recognize that the good that resides in us comes from Christ. And so I think it brings us to the very first practical point that Jesus, I think, is driving home to help us follow his commands. Embrace your new identity in Christ. Embrace your new identity in Christ. Every follower of Jesus, we need to think through this. We need to work this out. This thread of identity was established by Christ up in verse uh, 36 when he says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. It's already happened in the sermon. So, so you go back and you read through and you begin to see that Jesus is not just talking and giving commands for people to follow. And then they become his people. He's saying that as my people, because you're my people, you, this is the way you need to act. And in the middle of it, he says, it's not just that you're my people. It's not just that you're friends of mine, that you're actually, we're actually now family members. We're actually, uh, God is our father alongside of Christ. He is our brother in the faith, and now we are his family. This is the new identity. This is the new work that God has done in us. This new identity establishes with it a new heart, a whole new, a whole new ability I wasn't going to do this, but Galatians kind of, kind of sets this apart. Galatians 5, Paul is writing, and he says, I think it's right around in verse 13, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. He's talking to Christian people. You were called to be free. We just sang about that freedom. You're called to be free, he says, but, he says, uh, don't, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one, in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, the reality is, is that this new heart, it leads us into this place of freedom. We have an opportunity like no other people that has ever, have, have ever lived except those who are in Christ, those who have been made new by Christ. We are now free. We are free like every other person wants to be. We can actually do the right thing. We can actually choose to worship God. We can actually choose to love God. We can actually choose to love our enemies, not by our own power, not by our own effort, but because he has changed our heart. See, when he made us his children, he freed us. When he made us his, his children, he, he, God gave us a new heart. And in that heart, is, it is full of his love. It is full of his mercy. It is full of his grace. It is his righteousness imputed to us. He looks at us and he doesn't see guilt. He sees innocence. He looks at us and he doesn't see a reason to condemn, but, but to forgive and to give generously to 
You see, look at verse 45 of chapter, se- of chapter 6. He says it. The good person, how the good treasure of his heart produces good. The good treasure. Where did that good treasure come from? It was placed there. You see, when we recognize that even one bad action and even still fighting with these sinful actions, they reveal that there's still a sinful flesh within us, a a sinful desire within us. But we have been given by Christ an an ability, a power, a, a, a usefulness, a good treasure that we can then turn around and extend good and give people good and be beneficial to other people. See, on the one hand, the sin we commit doesn't condemn us, but reveals an evil heart that deserves condemnation. On the other hand, you have the grace of God and the imputed righteousness of Christ. The love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the generosity that's been put in your heart by the God who created. And that treasure now enables you It empowers us to actually be good. So we must examine our actions to know our identity. We must examine our actions to know who we are. We must seek to understand. Don't depend on some prayer you said as a child or some ritual of walking an aisle. I don't think that that's all wrong. Don't misunderstand me. At the end of this message, I'm going to call people to repent and believe and and come and talk to me. If you first believed in Christ today, I'm going to do that. But, but that methodology isn't your salvation. Examine your actions to know your heart. Examine the fruit of your life, he says. A good, true, a good tree bears good fruit. It's not a choice it makes. It's the nature of it. It's what it does. It can't help it. Orange trees can't help but give you oranges. They don't just decide one day that they're going to start sprouting apples. It doesn't happen. And so look at what he calls us to. I mean, specifically, in the first instance, he says, out of the treasure of his heart, or out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. He first comes to our words. He first deals with us, immediately deals with us on our words. You know, a lot of preachers, I think, I I understand why they go here, but but a lot of preachers immediately move to, uh, when they're talking about this, and a lot of commentators immediately move to, like, cussing. And so if you cuss, they're like calling you out on it, right? I think that falls a little short. I'm not saying it's not implied somewhere in it, but, but I don't think Jesus had a list of words in the Greek, or, or I guess he was probably speaking Aramaic, so he didn't have a list of Aramaic words in his mind when he said that. And he certainly didn't have our list of English words that we would consider cuss words in his mind when he said that. What was he talking about? Well, I don't know. Do, do your words, are, are they... Are they hurtful to people? Like, are they cutting without also offering hope? Like, there's nothing wrong with truth that confronts, but, but is there grace in the midst of that as well? Like, is there love in your language? Is there, is there a desire for good in the way that you speak to other people or speak about other people when they aren't listening? Are, are you gossiping about people? And gossip is just simply, it's, it's saying what you wouldn't say to someone's face. Let's just... That's a simple definition. It's a little bigger than that. Saying about someone behind their back what you wouldn't say to their face. Is is that the tone? Is that the overarching theme of your language? 
Like, you're always just speaking ill of everyone, or you're always negative about everybody else, and no, but you know what? I've got it figured out. Examine your actions. Examine your words. Examine the motive that moves your tongue. How about the things you do? Your actions. What, what do they reveal about you and who you are? Good works don't save us. Good works don't save us, but they are the result of being saved. If you can't look at your life and see the good works of loving God and loving others actively, reactively, proactively, and compassionately, what does it say about who you are? Matthew Henry points out in his comments on this passage, our words and actions are the result of what is in our heart. The heart is the tree. And the words and actions are fruit according to the nature of the tree. You see, we're all ready to count all the good we do on the outside of us, all the supposed good we do on the outside of us. And we want to count that as our fruit. Like, oh, I preached and 10,000 people became believers. That's not our fruit, at least not the fruit that Christ is talking about in this passage. The fruit of his work is the actions and the words that come out of your life. What do they say about who you are? Examine your actions. Pay close attention to this. We've got to deal with this. Cannot skip this step. There's really two kinds of people that we have to consider in this. There are those that have been, uh, that, that, that are lost and deceived and think they got it all figured out and they have been following a religious ritual Or on the other end of that spectrum, they've been following their own religion and demanding that God's going to accept their good works. Ah, it's not going to work for you. If your actions reveal that you are sinful, you need to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. That is your only hope. You will only ever produce evil unless he puts good in you. Please don't leave here today counting on some tradition. Look at your life. Look at the overarching theme of your life. Does the fruit of your life demonstrate that you are only evil? Repent of your sins, I plead with you. Believe in the work of Jesus Christ that you may enjoy his blessings. Whether you're religious or whether you're whether you're sinful completely in either end of that spectrum, you're depending upon yourself. Do not be deceived. And then, and, and so I, I just want to, to give you permission to just think on that. If that is who you are and that is how the Holy Spirit is dealing with you today, I want to give you permission that, that I'm going to talk to another group of people in this room. If you are believers and you see the ongoing work of Jesus in your life and you see the fruit being born out, you examine that fruit and you seek to express more of it. You seek to to let that fruit be known. Fruit was not intended to be good for the tree. It was meant to be enjoyed by everyone around it. Apple trees don't care about eating apples, but I love them. They are good for me. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's what I say. I'm a poet. That's not even in my notes. I just came up with that. And I didn't really. You know that. Listen, if, if you are a believer, 
And you examine that fruit and you praise God for it because it is the result of His good work and you will be blessed. Continue to be blessed by it. Enjoy it and you celebrate it. And you seek to see more of it produced. Remind yourself the second piece of this idea. How do we... How do we How do we see more of it produced? How do we continue producing good fruit? Remind yourself of the gospel regularly. Remind yourself of the gospel regularly. By reminding ourselves of the gospel regularly, we're storing up good in our heart. We're storing up that treasure. We're storing up that abundance of goodness in our heart that we will be able to give it away when time comes. If you've never believed this, this is, you know, this, this is the thing you need to begin believing is, is, is begin believing the gospel. But if you have been believing the gospel, you need to continue believing the gospel and believe it more fully so that you can continue absorbing or building up the treasure, the abundance of goodness that he has bestowed upon us. Here's a passage I want to share with you, a passage that I just appreciate and I come back to time and time again. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, if you are struggling, if, you don't, if you've seen fruit but you're not seeing fruit and you, you just need some help, think on this. Remind yourself of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, we're chosen in the gospel. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. We're chosen to be holy and blameless. Like he didn't see our sin anymore. He sees us as holy and he sees us as innocent. He predestined us for adoptions as sons. We're not just citizens in a kingdom. We're children of the king. Adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace which he's blessed us with in the beloved. We are blessed by him. Remind yourself of this. Go back to this. There's passage upon passage upon passage in the scripture that reminds us of this. In him we have redemption through his blood. I've been redeemed. I've been bought out of slavery. Is what that word means. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. We're not getting just a little bit of grace. Like we're being lavished with it. It's like gravy coating biscuits at breakfast, right? Like you want a bunch of it? He's giving you a bunch of it. Like it's just flowing over you. According. Listen, in which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is no mere simple choice. He is using every bit of his wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, we get to actually know what God is doing in the world according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. This is as bad as it ever gets for the Christian. There's an inheritance waiting for us. Having been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's hope in that. There's security in that. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise to his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed. You're sealed. Like there's nothing that can take that seal off. He's put his mark on you. You belong to him. Gosh, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Look, there's something we got great. We, we got something great to look forward to. This is as bad as it gets when we're struggling. We're not producing fruit and we're not seeing. There's something off in our hearts and we're just, nah, I just can't hardly do this anymore. I don't know how I'm going to get it done. You think 
on the gospel. You think on the goodness that God has given you. And that goodness will be stored up in your heart and you won't be able to keep it because there's too much of it and it'll begin to bubble up out of you. It becomes a natural fruit that, that, that comes out. We are so, 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 so messed up in our thinking. I just got to act right and then I'll believe right. No, that's wrong. You believe this and you strive to believe it even more fully. And the natural reaction is good fruit that comes out of you. The good fruit is the result of believing the gospel, not making a good plan to do good things. If you don't see good fruit, you figure out if you've ever believed the gospel, you figure out if you're not believing it fully. But you strive to believe the gospel, and good fruit will be the natural result. That's what we need to be doing. And it brings us then to verse 46. We need to keep reading. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what? I tell you. Now, commentators, and even if you're reading it in the ESV Bible, you'll see that it's separated down. The commentators kind of go back and forth about whether this is connected to the previous parable or whether it's connected to the parable to come. But I think it's a great transitionary statement that's probably connected to both. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid his foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who has built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. See, Jesus challenges the crowd here. They're they're no different than we are and we need to hear this challenge. We know a lot but I don't know that we necessarily always obey. Remember, think about who you are and what your actions reveal about who you are. Do you call him Lord, Lord? And then not do what he says? What does that say about who you are? What does that say you have to look forward to from him? See, but before we get too far into that, we've got to realize that there's another practical perspective kind of built out right there for us. In verse 46, build your life upon Christ. Know him. Know him. These people knew, and they knew to call him something. They knew something about him. Know him. There's no greater purpose to give yourself to than knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greatest investment of relationship equity we could find anywhere. This is the greatest investment we can make with our time, energy, or effort. I mean, anything about us. To to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes, Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. There is no relationship that is this worthy. There is no relationship next to Christ or pursuing a, a knowledge of and a knowledge, uh, a knowledge about and a knowledge of a knowing God. There is no greater relationship. We can strive and think that, oh, if I can just be a good father, a good husband, a good brother, a good employee, a good, then God's going to love me. You'll never be a good anything until you've got to know God. And and you invest in this relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He makes you good. 
And He bears good fruit from you. The more you know about Christ, the more you know Christ, then you will be a better husband, a better father, a better son, a better brother, sister, a better... Uh, you, the list goes on. I, what, what, in, what relationships do you have? A better friend, a better neighbor, a better employee, a better grocery shopper, a better... Like, where do you interact with people? You get to know Christ. And that's where he makes you better. See, until we spend time getting to know God, we aren't ready to be any of those other things. But in getting to know him through Christ, we are made ready to be these things. And the second thing, he says, he says okay, so, so you call me Lord, Lord, you act like you know me. Why don't you obey me? So we got to know him, and we need to obey him. Hearing isn't enough. Having heard, we become responsible to obey. We become responsible to actually do something with it. This is why James wrote to the church. He said, but be doers of the word. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And we're constantly under pressure in this culture with the information that flows at us, that even in Christian culture, to know a lot of stuff. Like, like I know people who feel like oh, I'm supposed to know where all the Bible verses are at. Like, I don't know. I can't quote a verse. I, I, I want to relieve you of some of that pressure. Yeah, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know God. I want you to know his word. I want you to be invested in it. I want it to fill you and dwell richly within you. But it does no good for us to fill our minds with it when it's not changing the way our feet walk. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to know the word and then not change or correct the direction of our life. That's why, brothers and sisters, why we're taking our time in Luke. Because I'm not about getting a bunch of word in you. I want you to rest in this and let it rest in you so that it changes you. Because I haven't done my job well if I let you come in here and then not expect you to get up and do. And if I just come with all, oh, here's the next series. We've got to figure out now how to be a, I don't know, a good soccer coach. You know, well, if, if you'll figure out your money, God will finally love you. Let's have that series. It's not about figuring all that out. It's about learning to believe the gospel so fully that it changes you so radically that you begin to love God and love others, even your enemies. It's why, brothers and sisters, it's why we would encourage your community group leaders not to go do some other book, but to sit and let the word that's been preached just dwell with you. I spend, I spend about 10, 15, 20 hours, depending on the week, with these texts. I've been reading these texts for now, for, for, for going on uh, well, however many weeks we've been in Luke. I've, I've been reading in chapter 6, now reading in chapter 7 for like 10 weeks. And it's changing me. It's shaping me. I long for the same thing for you. I hope that we look more like Christ every day. So quit trying to learn a bunch of stuff and learn the one thing that we need to know. God is perfect and holy and righteous and he loves a sinner like you and he's provided a way for you to step into relationship with him 
Study that so, so intently, so preciously. Remind yourself of it so regularly that you don't just actually hear it and it just keeps washing over you and then washing off of you, but that it actually settles down inside of you and changes the way you act. That you obey Him, that you don't just know about Him, but that you walk in obedience to Him, walking in relationship alongside of Him. Philip Ryken says, the truest profession of our faith is the practice of our faith. We can't say we believe if we don't actually do something that looks like we believe. You can say you believe all day long, but if you won't actually step out on it and act in it, you don't really believe. So here we're back at these two groups of people. In one, there's the religious and the sinful alike, counting on their own efforts and their own goodness. The religious are especially prominent in this because they hear God's word, but they do nothing with it. But they claim to believe it, and they'll even walk up to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. In Matthew, he tells us that you'll come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Hear this warning. If we are trusting Christ, if we are trusting his gospel, if we know him, we will obey him. Let me just close with the assurance and the warning that Christ closes with this sermon. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show him, show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Listen, your hope is not in the fun you have. It's not in, the, in, in the, how, how many people like you. Your hope is not in how comfortable you feel in this world. Your hope is not in whether or not you're deemed successful by the world. If somebody comes and does a news story on your life because you're such a great human being, but you have nothing to say about Christ, you have not won. Your hope is in doing the work, the difficult work of digging down to the rock, building your life on Christ. And yes, you may feel like there's times I don't get to go have the fun that they seem to be having. They seem to have it so easy. They seem to have it so good. They got all the money. They got all the, you know, they get all the things that my flesh wants. And I just wish I had some of those things to go along with my faith. Give it up and get busy digging down to the rock and building your foundation on the rock And when the storm comes, when the stream breaks against the house, you will endure that storm. Your best days are yet to come because there's going to come a point when the storms will end and your house will be built in glory. Your inheritance will be yours. You will actually get to take hold of it. But let me end with his warning. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. You see, this man was in pursuit of comfort, happiness, wealth, popularity, you know, whatever his heart desired, so he built a house the easy way. The stream breaks against the house. It's destroyed. What does the fruit of your life reveal about your heart, about your nature? If you see the good of God's work in your life actively going on today, let me just encourage you to be praise, to to be full of praise for him, to adore him. 
But if you're counting on your religion, your practice of walking an aisle, your prayer you said as a kid, even something as noble as getting baptized, and you think that saved you, and that's keeping you saved, or you're good enough, God will accept you when you finally get there, like he's going to, you're going to restore his faith in humanity, you're going to do enough good to make him proud of you, don't be deceived. Do not be a, do, do, do not build your house on the sand. Because the best days here, and they're few and far between, I think, are the best you've got. Do not miss his blessings. Repent of your sin. Believe in, this, in, in God's son, Jesus Christ, his death and burial and resurrection, that you might be saved and you might know the blessing of God. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing to even offer this to a people who don't deserve it, to love us in spite of who we are. God, in there, I, there's hearts that represent a people in this room. And there's people in this room, I'm confident, that are yours. And that the goodness of your work is is evident in them. And we are enjoying the fruit of that. Together we get to enjoy it. God, I'm grateful for that. I praise you for that. God, I'm concerned. That there's people in this room that have held on to a a false confession. They've called you Lord, Lord, and it's never changed anything about them. They've built a lot of knowledge, but it's never sunk deep enough to direct their path. They've, and the overarching fruit of their life is selfish and reveals them to be sinful and only sinful. Holy Spirit, I ask that in this moment you would deal with their hearts. That they would not be able to leave here counting on their effort. That they would not be able to sleep tonight. That they'd feel the weight of conviction. And that they'd find the hope of Christ. And the blessing. And the honor of being redeemed and being chosen for holiness and being blameless and predestined for adoption. We work now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.